Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast contains strong language, mature content, and is rated R for recovery. Listener discretion is advised. Love and hate just pass me by Like a summer sun across the sky As the years roll by As the time slides by Every day just passes by Like a summer sun across the sky As the years roll by As the time slides by all right, and welcome to the Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast. My name is Ray Corona, and I'm your host. And it's episode five, episode zero five. Man, it took me a hot minute to get this one out. Life can get a little bit challenging and overwhelming sometimes, but like my daughter's shirt says, stay calm and never give up. So let's start this off in full transparency. I am not an expert. I'm just a person in long-term recovery with good intentions. Although I have put in some work to get to where I am today, as I was out in my active struggle for over 19 years. And now I have some clarity in my life and my vision for this podcast is to provide a platform to share our recovery stories, to impact lives and together make a difference. But in the meantime, let's help those that are still suffering from drug and alcohol addiction understand that we can recover, we do recover and we will recover out loud. I named it Pure Uncut because I want this to be 110% the real deal. No need to sugarcoat anything. Let's just keep this raw and impactful. So please check us out on the web, www.pureuncutrecovery.com. There you can subscribe to make sure that you get the latest episodes first on your favorite platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we would really appreciate it if you would give us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. The Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast does not speak on behalf, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. On this week's episode of the Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast, we are hearing from Molly Swanton. Molly's story is one of drive and determination to overcome the struggle. Her journey begins in New York City, growing up privileged as an only child and living on the 28th floor of a fancy high-rise in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. She recalls one of her earliest memories, feeling incredibly alone at five years old and wishing she could be anywhere else as she learned to survive the madness, walking on eggshells while on the surface, everything appeared to be fine. Molly goes on to describe sugar as her first addiction and is bullied for her weight, causing her to be filled with anger and hate and is eventually introduced to drugs and alcohol at the age of 13, paving the way for countless overdoses in high-priced treatment centers in Florida and California. She learns that her father has passed away and left her a large sum of money, and after blowing through most of her inheritance, she returns to yet another Florida treatment center and loses a close friend to an overdose, inspiring Molly to gain momentum in her recovery, finding employment and treatment, and is now becoming a positive member of society. Here's Molly Swanton. Molly Swanton, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast and share your experience, your strength, and your hope. And it's really great to have you here, Molly. You definitely have a powerful recovery story that I cannot wait to get into. So please take a moment, introduce yourself to the listeners, tell us your sobriety date, your drug of choice, and what recovery means to you, and then we'll dig into your story. 
Thank you so much for having me, Ray. Um, so my sobriety date is May 5th, 2021. Um, my drugs of choice are heroin, crack, and Xanax. And I've been fighting this battle for a very long time. And I feel very grateful to be here. Um, what recovery means to me? Well, recovery touches like all aspects of my life nowadays. But like as far as when it comes to, you know, drugs and alcohol, it means get, getting another chance. Right. Like getting a chance to not be selfish and to finally help others and become the woman that, you know, my higher power, my purpose in life to 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 help people and to fulfill my purpose that I was put on this earth to do. Awesome. So so Molly, can you share with us a little bit about what it was like growing up? Yeah, of course. Um, so growing up, so let's see, I was, uh, born in New York city, um, in 1990. Um, I lived in Manhattan on the Upper East side in that building, the Jefferson's like moving on up to the top in the big apartment (laughs) in the sky. (laughs) Yeah. That's where I lived in that blue building. Um, did you ever see George Jefferson in there? No, but when I, my mom was pregnant, they were filming the last episode. So it was kind of like I was there. I just wasn't actually seeing it, you know, because um, it's a little bit, you know, my birthday is a little later past the time. But um, I am an only child. Um, I was born to my mother, um, Elizabeth Davies, and my father, Um Ronald or Donald. And he, um, my dad is actually deceased now. Um, my mother still is currently living. Um, so growing up, growing up was very difficult for me. Um, you know, I, I was born, you know, to two parents who weren't quite, quite there for me emotionally. Um, what I mean by that is like, my dad was, you know, an alcoholic and a narcissist. And my mom was a very avoidant, emotionally not capable of being there for me at that time. Um, you know, I kind of feel like it kind of generations of family and, you know, mental health and alcoholism gets passed down. And so we kind of recreate the families that we're used to growing up in. Um So, you know, from the outside, our family looked great. You know, we were the happy, the healthy. We had, you know, um, decent, you know, money. My my father was an accountant um, and my mother worked at Dalton, the famous school. Lady Gaga actually went there, which is kind of cool. But um, she was a photography slash art teacher there. Um, and I, one of my first, you know, memories was like being in my room, like on, you know, the 28th floor, like playing dress up, wishing I was anywhere else, but where I lived. And the reason being is I always felt so alone. I always felt like, you know, Um, it's not that I needed someone to be there with me, but when you have family, that's not really there, you tend to feel alone. And, um, 
a lot of what I heard was, you know, fighting and arguing. Um, it, it just wasn't very like happy. Um, my, my cat actually was kind of mean too. So anytime I tried to pet it, it would like try and scratch me, you know? Um, and so from the outside, like I said, everything looked great, but from the inside, it wasn't good. And things kind of started to get worse, you know, as time went on. Um, my grandmother had cancer and my mom left and my dad was there taking care of me. Um, and I remember, you know, I had those Barbie scissors and I would cut my hair. I cut all my hair off with them because my dad would just kind of sit in his room and drink and um, leave me in the house with all the lights off. And my mom walked home and she saw my hair and she's like, that's it. I'm getting a divorce. Um, and I still remember that to that day. And how old were you? The first, I was probably like five, maybe four. Um, I was real young. I, for some reason that memory, you know, popped back in, you know what I'm saying? Um, because it was the first thought in my mind was, did I cause this? You know what I mean? Like, was this because of me? Because she saw my hair, you know, now that I'm older. Right. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I think obviously what it was at the time was like, she saw that my dad wasn't capable of taking care of me. Right. Cause like my mom was the one that really wanted me and my dad, wanted me, but like he was dealing with some issues, obviously. And when you live, you know, with a narcissist family member, you're walking on eggshells all the time. You're always trying to please that person. You know, you have to kind of be a certain way. And so from a very young age, I learned kind of how to survive on my own, how to make food for myself, like how to, you know, um, just be able to please my father and not make him upset. Cause when I made him upset, that's when things got crazy. Um, the divorce put a lot of stress on my family. Um, I constantly remember, you know, my dad asking me who I wanted to live with my mother, my father, you know, and they separated, obviously. And um, it just it was like a battle for about six years at the beginning of it. You know, I was I I was able to go see my father. Um, he had a house in the Hamptons and I remember going out there and he got very drunk one night um, and he started to sexually abuse me. Um, I was about five years old. So like right after the divorce started, um, and he had lost his job because he was drinking too much, um, is when it all started. And, um, I was young, you know, um, for a lot of my life, I didn't even realize it happened, um, until someone said something one day and it just kind of clicked and the memories started coming back. Um, you know, it was, it was tough. Like, cause not only am I like young trying to take care of myself, but I'm also, you know, very confused on what's going on with my father. And I remember one time I tried to fight him and he didn't like that. And he, um, shut me in the closet and forgot about me. 
for about 12 hours. And um, after that, I decided, you know, not to fight back anymore because the only thing worse than being sexually abused is being alone in the dark by yourself when you're a child, not knowing what you're doing wrong and not understanding. Right. Um, and it was a lot of darkness in that period of time. You know, I felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to. I was a kid. I had no idea what was going on. Um, I remember my dad would take me back from these like unsupervised visits to my mother's house. And, um, I would, I would pull like his bottle of liquor out and throw it at the wall. Um, and like when we got back to New York, he stopped at McDonald's to get me food and get him food. And he ordered the food and got so drunk when we were up in the kids area at the top, he, um, got kicked out and left me in New York city about a block away from my house. And I was six and I had to walk home. And after that, my mother was like, no more unsupervised visits, you know, like, I think she knew always that something was going on, but she just didn't know what it was. And I think it was easier to kind of like deny what you know, was going on versus like, you know, feel the truth. Because if we, you know, find the truth, then we think it's our fault for some reason. And so it took me a very long time to understand that and to fight through that because I was always angry at her because, you know, she was the parent that was healthier in a sense. You know what I mean? Um, so when I got back, she was like, all right, time for supervised visits. And um, that didn't last very long. My father stopped showing up. Um, things got really bad. And that's when my uncle kind of stepped in, um, which is my dad's brother. He's like a father to me now. You know, um, he's amazing. His name is um, Bob, Uncle Bobby. And, um, he stepped in and, and he told my father, we had an intervention for him, um, to go to Karen PA in Pennsylvania. And I remember, you know, he wouldn't go. He was like, so against it. Um, the only thing I do remember was my mom saying like, you know, do this for your child. And he looked at me and he goes, I never wanted a child. You wanted a child. And that's why I gave you one. And, um, that made me really angry and upset inside. And, um, you know, my mother thought like, all right, it's time to get out of here. So we moved down to Florida, to Bradenton, Florida, right? Um, moving to Bradenton was difficult. We lived off of an island called Anna Maria Island. It's directly on the other coast of Florida. Um, and, you know, I was angry. I was filled with anger and hate, you know, I, I'm in this new place, you know, all these kids in school grew up together. Um, and I wasn't very much included in that, you know, so I was bullied very heavily and I was an angry child. And so I had a lot of tantrums. I remember that I would throw things at the wall. I would get angry. Um, at this time also, you know, my mother, she, um, 
was dealing with, she had her own issues and most of them were like, you know, food and weight. And, and, you know, I remember I used to cope with sugar. That was like, I would call my first drug, right. Drug of choice, because that's all I had access to at the time. Um, and so I remember she would tell me no sugar. So I would walk to CVS and I would steal sugar. And I always got that feeling like, you know, what I'm doing is not right. Right. But like I needed to be so outside of myself that I didn't care what was right at that point. You know, I was kind of so angry that I was just like, you know, like how, you know, like how could this happen? Basically, I was very confused and angry and upset. So up to um, this point, Molly, you still were harboring everything that happened to you. You, you yeah. yeah, at that point, you hadn't told yeah, anyone. Yeah, I was harboring a lot. I mean, I got angry and I would have tantrums and I would throw things, right? But like it didn't make the confusion any easier to understand. Like I was t- torn away from my father at this point. And so in my mind, it was like, why didn't he love me? Like, why hasn't he called? Why hasn't he sent a letter? Like, why was I taken away from him? You know? Um, and you know, I, I, I didn't have many friends cause I was bullied for my weight at the time. And, you know, my mother still, she was like available, but not like the type of mother she was searching for love basically. And, um, so she was there, but we weren't really connecting. Um, at this point she had met someone, Um, and they got pretty serious pretty quickly. Um, we ended up moving in with him and he had three children. Um, their names, you know, they weren't supposed to live with us. Um, but it ended up happening. They started living with us and, um, you know, that's, that was really my first introduction to drugs and alcohol. My stepdad, uh, would smoke pot and, uh, leave it in the freezer and my stepsister, I don't know if she was jealous. We just didn't get along, but I remember they left for a weekend and she showed me all the pot and she's like, this is what your mother's doing when she's not around. And, um, then we would walk to the back house and my other stepsister was, you know, shooting up heroin and I witnessed that. Um, and I was probably about like 13 at the time, 13, 14. Um, at this point, you know, I had switched schools. I started going to a private school. The bullying got too much and, um, I started avoiding things. So I switched to a private school and I started to play sports and sports really helped, right? Like I got into teams and I started making friends because I was constantly, you know, I would go from like, I remember going at school and I would go to like cross country practice to soccer, to volleyball, you know, home to do homework, right to bed, shower, and then do it all over again. Right. But I loved it. I was busy. I was always gone. You know, I was like with these women all the time, you know, it was, um, a good time in my life. Some of the sports I did, I mean, I started off with horseback riding. Um, I did that for a very long time. I was on a swim team for nine years. I did cross country. Um, I did soccer, volleyball. Um, and I think that's it. I didn't do basketball cause I wasn't good at it, but that, that was enough to keep me. Yeah. That's enough right there. <laughs> to keep me 
redemptive, you know? And, um, this is where my adventure started. Like I remember, you know, to this day. Um, so my new private school that my mom worked at, which is actually now closed due to fraud, the owner was like frauding all the money, which is very interesting. So my high school's not open currently, but, um, you know, but it went from like eighth grade all the way up to 12th. And I was, I think in eighth grade or ninth grade. And I made the varsity volleyball team. Um, and so I was with a lot of older girls and the sophomore, she had a fake ID. Um, and you know, she took me, she went and she bought a bottle of Bacardi 151 after, you know, a soccer game that we had lost because we were a private school. We were not that great, but, um, you know, we still had fun. Um, and we did the best that we could. And anyways, um, she was like, do you want to drink? And I was like, sure, I'll try it. And like, you know, to this point, my family had always told me growing up that I was an alcoholic, right? Um, just because it rained in my family. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom's dad was an alcoholic, you know, like. You're going to be an alcoholic too. Right? Yeah, basically. But, you know, of course, because of my, my upbringing, I was like, I don't, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I want. Right. And, and that kind of philosophy still affects me to this day, but uh, I've, de- I've been trying to work on that. Right. Um, so anyways, we go to the beach, right. And we're sitting on the side and, uh, she takes a swig and passes it to me. And I had never told her this was my first time drinking. Um, but I took a swig of it and I immediately puked. And after that, it was like, you know, this tingling feeling of just feeling like I had finally found something that, you know, was that was helpful. Right. Cause I started to get like confident after I started to get tipsy and like, you know, we had fun that night and we stumbled into the house and, um, I, I just remember like, it was like, I finally had met like the love of my life kind of is like yeah. the best way I can describe it, you know? Yeah. That's a, a hell of a way to start with 151. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, go big or go home, as they say. <laughs> um, yeah. And it started off with like, you know, parties on the weekends, right? Because it was always like that feeling of wanting to be accepted, like not wanting to feel alone, wanting to feel a part of in any way that I could, right? Like it, it really had nothing to do with like what... I, the drinking, it was more about the feelings that I was dealing with and like the abuse and keeping all that hidden. Um, so I started going to parties and, you know, smoking pot. And, um, I remember, you know, um, when this happened and I, I still, you know, had lived with my stepfather when I wouldn't follow the rules, he started to get angry and, um, he started to hit me physically, um, because he couldn't control me and that bothered him, you know? Um, and I remember this one time he, so his, his daughter tried to drown me in the water. So I got out and I, um, put my arms around her neck and he got off and he hit me so hard and my mother's just begging him to stop and he wouldn't. And then she just stopped begging and just watched me get hit. 
And that is the first time I had never felt safe, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, when I didn't feel safe, that's when I was like, all right, you know, like the only person who's going to take care of me is myself, you know, like that's all that I have in this world. Um, And that's a very, very dark place to be in, but that's, you know, where my experience took me. So I started drinking on the weekends and partying and everything seemed good on the outside. Right. I remember I invited the first guy over um, and, you know, to this day, I haven't reported him, but he, he sexually abused me. Um, And after that, I slept for about three days and um, my mother, you know, she knew something was wrong. She just didn't understand why. And um, for a while I thought it was my fault because, you know, I invited him over to hang out, but I never asked for that, you know? Um, So, you know, after that, it was just like, let's, let's drink, like, let's do, you know, let's drink during the week, let's drink during the day. Um, and I started to get very angry and upset inside. And I remember this girl at a party, like told me I was too drunk. So I decked her in the face. I broke her nose and everything. Like I, didn't trust people and, um, I wasn't happy. Um, you know, but like the anger took over when I started drinking at a very young age. Right. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think I had an issue. I was just like, okay, like, you know, maybe I just need to drink a little less. Right. Like, um, so I, re- I like got a job, you know, cause I was young and my mom's like, you know, you need to work. And I was like, all right. So I got a job at a retirement center. I was about, you know, 16 at the time. Um, and I was still at that private school and I was still playing sports. Um, but on the weekends I worked at this retirement center. Um, and that's when I met this guy. Um, and you know, he was like a dream to me at the time, you know, um, was I was older hostess. or younger. He was older than me. Um, he's actually married now and, um, we've done some amends, but, um, at this time, you know, he was, he was selling drugs. Um, and he offered me my first opiate, um, 16 years old, which is crazy. Um, but, you know, I was young and I was in high school and I was like, all right, let me try this. You were you angry know? too. Yeah, I was very angry at the time. Well, I was mostly sad, but like the anger is what came out to protect myself. Um, and that's really when I like when I took that opiate, like I was like, OK, nobody knows what's going on. Like with the drinking, like people would notice how angry I was. But with the opiate, like I thought nobody knew I was on them. You know, and so my best friend and I, we started doing them for two years straight in high school. And, you know, people obviously noticed my dog would bark at me when I would come home. I would come home at all different times. I remember I, you know, I started to get into trouble. My mom had to pay the cops because like, you know, I would have been arrested so many times. So she would donate money, you know, to the cops so that I didn't get arrested. (laughs) Yeah. I remember I crashed my car and parked it on the side and the cop drove me home. She went out of town. I threw a party at her house, you know, and they showed up and they didn't arrest me. They just kind of sent everyone home, you know? So it was kind of like, maybe I would have stopped when I was younger because, you know, 
Um, but my mother kind of, you know, she was, she thought at the time she was protecting me, but she was more enabling me. Right. Um, you know, and I think she felt guilty for the way my father treated me. Um, she ended up breaking up with the guy, you know, things just didn't work. And, um, we moved, you know, back to Anna Maria Island. Um, like I said, I was doing opiates every day. I was like not showing up to school or showing up halfway late because my mom was a teacher there. I had a lot of leniency, you know, I could come and go as I please, but I was just not the same person already now that I look back. Um, and then when I was about like 18 years old, I remember I was sitting in my friend's room and she's like, this is too expensive. Like, let's just stop. And I was like, all right. And guess what? She stopped and I didn't. Um, and you know, it was a problem. And so when I graduated, my mom was like, all right, maybe you need to go away to college, <laughs> you know, like let, let's try and move you somewhere else and see if that helps. Like, it's probably just this town, you know what I mean? And, um, so, so she decided to send me to Gainesville <laughs> to UF. And, um, I ended up, you know, I did well for about two semesters, you know, I loved it there. I went and saw the Gators play, you know, like, but it's just like one thing switched to another, right? Like I went from using opiates to drinking again. Um, and I was still angry, but it was more like I was partying all the time, um, and not going to class and like, you know, just kind of very lost is the best way I can describe it. Um, and so when I finally, you know, failed out of school and moved back home, my mother was like, all right, I, I think it's time like you go to treatment, you know, and I was 19 years old when I entered into my first treatment center, um, which was a very, you know, young age to be going to treatment. Um, but they didn't really, you know, they didn't really do my uncle, and my mom, because that's who my parents were at the time. They didn't really do any research. They didn't know anything about addiction. Like they just kind of, um, you know, picked a place um, in Clearwater. And, you know, I, because I had survived like all the abuse and everything, I was a very good manipulator, a very good liar. You know, I, I, I mean, I remember I used to steal my mother's checks and cash them. And I was doing all kinds of scams at this point because in high school, I didn't have any money like that to afford, you know, buying um, pills on a regular basis and stuff like that. And so once I got to the treatment center, you know, the first thing they did was prescribe me Xanax for my anxiety. And so the whole 30 days I was there, I wouldn't call myself sober. You know, I was on Xanax in these groups. And then because the Xanax knocked me out so much, my neck started to hurt. So then they put me on Flexerol, a muscle relaxer. And the combination was like a sedative for me. And I just, I don't remember a single thing about that. <laughs> you know, it's like a blur. Um, I had finally met my first serious boyfriend at the time. I had met him at a sex shop actually. Nice. And, um, he invited me to Red Lobster for our first date. And, um, you know, he wasn't an addict, but he, um, 
he had family members that dealt with it. And um, when I got out of treatment, he was like, let's try moving with my family. So I moved to Tennessee with him. Um, you know, it obviously didn't work out. We tried, we were together for like six years, you know, but at that point it was just, my life kept started to spin out of control. Um, you know, it was just a lot of like, I didn't know anyone in Tennessee, first of all, so that didn't help. Um, and you know, I quickly had moved back home because it just wasn't working out because I wasn't motivated to do anything or to change anything at that point. Um, so I moved back home and I started using even heavier because we started to break up. Um, I started to get into cocaine at this point and I was 20 about this time. Um maybe 21. And I did so much cocaine. I put myself into a psychosis and I ended up in a psych ward. Um, and I thought I was a genius. And I thought if I didn't sign the 72 hour form that I would be let out earlier. And it was exactly the opposite. And, um, I was forced to stay there for like a week and a half. And, um, my parents were like, all right, this is serious. Like she's got something going on. So they did their research and they sent me to the ranch in Nunley, Tennessee, which is like, you know, it's like close to Hazleton. It's like, you know, the supposed to be one of the best places. And, um, it was a really good place, right? Like it was probably the best vacation I'd ever been on. We did a lot of like, (laughs) can we backtrack? A little bit and go back to that first treatment center. Yeah. What was that like? So the, so the first treatment center was a lot of group therapy, but I don't remember most of it is the thing. A lot of it's a blur, you know, it was a lot of, um, so I'm sure it was very helpful, but I don't remember most of it, you know? Okay. Um, and I so, remember my, the only thing I remember is like my therapist saying I couldn't go on the outing because I wasn't awake and grew. And I was like, well, you guys prescribed me this, <laughs> you know? So I don't know if I call it my first treatment center it was my first experience of being in like a lockdown facility. Right. Um, you but know, now you're and, at the ranch and that's that you remember that. Yes. I remember the ranch perfectly. Um, It was amazing, to be honest. Like, it was a great vacation. Like I told you, very extravagant. Um, But I did learn a lot about myself as well, right? Like through that, you know, because I did all the extra private stuff. So we had like equine therapy, which I love horses because, as I said, I did horseback riding and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I really connected to that. And that's not like riding. It's more, you know, just connecting with the horse like learning to be in a safe space like with the horse and have the horse kind of like heal you it's it's very strange um and different to talk about but it's you know um not being afraid of being around a larger size animal and having that animal trust you it's kind of learning to connect again with another human being because you lose that when you start to, you know, um, use drugs and alcohol, you're isolating and you're very alone and you're, um, constantly worrying about money or where to get the next fix from. Right. 
Um, so I did like equine therapy. I did do horseback riding. I did massages. Um, they had, you know, a drum circle. Um, we did a lot of meditation. We had art therapy. We did kayaking. Sounds pretty I mean, expensive. <laughs> but my uncle's like i want the best for her but you know my thought at the time was like oh if this is what sobriety's about i want it yeah, you know awesome massages yeah. and all that good stuff <laughs> yeah i mean we did have group therapy in the morning up at the top and i remember that and it was like you know a woman's house and a man's house and i really connected with that you know um, and so it did help me. I'm not going to say like it was a waste of time being there because it did help me. What was your mindset um, like though, while you were there, were you still like thinking about using drugs when you get up? It was like on and off, but, but more so I was like, maybe I should try this, you know, like, and see what sobriety is about, you know? Okay. Um, I mean, and also it was like, there's not there were other people like kind of going through similar experiences as me, you know, maybe obviously at different places in their lives, but you know, if they're going to try it, like, why shouldn't I try something? And, so there's and some I seeds stayed, being planted at that time. Yeah, exactly. That was like my first seeds. Um, it's also when I first realized about the abuse, we did this uh, therapy where they had, cause it was like in the country in Tennessee and um, we would throw rocks at the walls. And I, I remember they talked about, you know, they wanted you to talk about something and some girl was talking about her abuse and then like a memory flashed in my mind. And I just remember throwing the rocks at the wall, like pounding it. And I started breaking down crying, um, you know, and it was like, I knew, so I didn't know exactly what the abuse was at the time, but I knew something had happened and I just couldn't, you know, it was my first experience of realizing why, you know, like where it all started and all of that. Um, but, you know, I got through it and I moved on and um, my uncle was like, OK, you know, he moved me to a transitional living um, in Florida. And I don't know if they necessarily have many of those nowadays, but a transitional living is like not like residential or like, you know, inpatient treatment, but it's more so like. Kind of like PHP, but like you're you're not even like allowed to leave the house. So more like residential, I guess you could say in a way, you know, and um, that was a lot. I didn't really, you know, like it, but I went through it. It was a lot of like being alone and being alone at that time was very hard for myself um, because that's when all the memories used to flow. You know, um, so that was about three months and I really did heavy therapy there. You know, I, I did work through some of my issues and I ended up um, moving to my first experience of a halfway. And if for the listeners, if you don't know what a halfway is, it's basically, um, you know, when you go to, you know, treatment um, and you need 
you kind of need, you know, reintroduction back into society. And a halfway teaches you, you know, how to clean your room, how to get up and have a job and, you know, be home by a certain time and just like a lot of rules. And, um, you know, surprisingly, um, I did okay at that one. Um, and, you know, my roommate was my best friend at the time. Her name was Emily. Um, and she was uh, great and we really connected and I started, you know, going to meetings as they suggested, um, and just kind of, you know, I didn't really know anyone in South Florida at that point, but I was willing to try it for a while. Um, you know, I got a job. I remember riding my bike to that job very frequently. What kind of job? Um, I worked at a bakery actually. Um, and I would serve people pastries and coffee. Awesome. So yeah, it was cool. Um, I liked it a lot, you know, until I got hit by a car on my bike. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. But, you know, my mom came and she was like, here's a car. I don't want you to get hit, you know, because um, some people just don't watch when they're driving. But, um, you know, and, and things started to get a little better for me. Um, I started to, you know, make friends and be happy. And, um, you know, I. I um, got promoted at my job. I was a Bartista and then I got promoted to this. So I worked at like a college campus at, um, as a Bartista, making better money than the bakery. And um, they promoted me and I was a manager of their store, like their on-campus convenience store, which is like not a lot of people watching you and counting inventory and doing a lot of stuff. Um, you know, and I was happy at that point. Um, and you know, I was like, all right, it's time to move out. And I moved into an apartment, um, with one of the girls in my halfway. And I would say that's where things started to, you know, fall apart a little bit. Um, I don't know necessarily if I was ready at the time, you know, but I thought I was ready. Um, and I, I didn't really do anything after that. I started playing video games a lot and isolating myself, um, you know, and, and I would hang out with friends, but I just wasn't as, you know, um, motivated to kind of change. So up to this point, were you uh, working any sort of 12 step program or going any to any meetings? Yeah. So I was introduced to AA and I would go to meetings and like fellowship and stuff like that. Like, and fellowship is like going out to eat with people and stuff like that. So I had friends and like, I started working the steps, but I wasn't very like, I didn't think that I needed a type of program at that point. You know, I was kind of um, stuck a lot in what they call ego, which is like, the part that protects you, you know? Um, and you know, my uncle at the time had paid for the apartment and I wasn't very, um, responsible myself. And I remember a day before my year, my roommate came home because we are, our sobriety dates were on the same day at that point. And she came home with a bottle and uh, to celebrate 
our one year. Not good. And we both drank and we both got wasted. And I picked up my white chip and she picked up her year coin the next day. And I was beyond upset because like it was the one person I had trusted and she was like lying to you know all of our friends and it was just it, it things got really messy after that so how did you um, feel after like having a year and then losing it all so I think I kind of self-sabotaged because I was supposed to go speak at the ranch in front of all the women and they were going to fly me up there. But for some reason, I didn't feel inside like I was deserving of that year. Um, now that I look back and think about it, you know, but, I, you know, um, I was like, this is too much speaking in front of all these people, you know, and and so I kind of sabotaged it, you know, in a way. Do you think that, like at that time, in your your mentality, was that hey, all I did was drink. I didn't use drugs. Yes. So I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I just thought I had a problem. You know, if that makes sense. So a problem is something that you can stop. Um, you know, on your own terms, if things get bad enough, right? Like you can stop if you have, you know, a reasoning to. And, um, so I thought, you know, this is just a problem. Like I am able to, I knew I had a problem with drugs. I didn't think alcohol was a problem. So it was the opposite way around. Um, and so I thought the drinking would be fine and it, it, it just wasn't, you know, um, because I was, you know, surrounding myself with the same types of people that kind of reiterated that, you know, I can't trust people. It's not okay to feel safe, that kind of stuff, you know? And when she picked up that year coin, and I had self-sabotage. I, I use that as like a victim mentality. Here we go again. Someone I can't talk to or trust. And I moved out. Um, I got someone to take over my lease. And I moved into a trailer park, um, which was the worst idea I've ever had in my life. Um, I had gotten a job at a country club at that point. Hospitality was big. And I'd always, I'd always kept jobs up like, uh, I seem to be very good at presenting myself as like everything's put together, you know, and I always kept a job and I was working at a country club, making really good money. Um, my next door neighbor was a dealer. Um, I was buying off of him for a while and we would hang out one day. I come home from work. Um, my door of my trailer is kicked down everything is stolen out of it. Um, he was inside and waited for me. He tied me up and took me to his house. Um, I was not able to talk to my family. Um, and luckily, this you know, is your, your dealer doing this to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, he was my neighbor also, but yes. Um, he had tied me up and he sexually abused me. Um, luckily at the time the cops were watching him because he was dealing drugs. Um, and they raided the apartment. Um, and, um, I was, you know, let go. And, um, I, you know, 
had to testify against him, which was tough. Um, you know, my family actually didn't know about this. Um, I've never really told them. I, I just like, there are certain aspects of my life that I just don't like to talk about. And this part is one of them. Um, but I think it's very important for people to hear that, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what you've been through. It's about how you get out of it. Right. Like, um, and, and that was, that was tough. That was very tough, um, to go through. And, you know, a lot of my memory actually for a while was kind of, I don't know, your mind's a powerful thing and it, it kind of blocked a lot of it out, you know? But I remember my mom picked me up from the police station because I had told her, you know, I had told her my house got robbed and all that. Um, I didn't tell her about the other part, though, you know, and, um, you know, my uncle was like, that's it. And um, he rented me an apartment, um, you know, on a golf course. And um, I had tried to move on, um, you know, from that aspect. And at that point, um, you know, I didn't really want to talk to people anymore. Um, I didn't trust anybody. And I, all I did was like work and work out. Um, I was in school at that point. And, you know, um, I started hanging out with my work friends. They were so in Florida, what they used to do is they used to bring people from other countries kind of over to the U.S. to work in the country clubs. And I made friends with a lot of them um, because I trusted them because I'm like, oh, they're from a different country, you know? Yeah. Um, and things got a little better for a while, you know? Um, I kind of, um, you know, was in school and I was drinking, but it wasn't, you know, as heavy I was also um, taking Adderall at the time to help with school. Um, and so I, I managed for a while. Um, but, you know, I am an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so that didn't last for very long, as we know. And um, I remember, you know, I, I at that point, like drugs were starting to become expensive and I couldn't afford it anymore. And I called my mom and my mom came over and uh, she put me in detox and I was in detox for a week. Um, and in that time, all I heard about was how heroin was cheaper and how, you know, um, you know, if I wanted to stop, I should just, or if I wanted to keep using, I could just switch. And that's exactly what I did when I left detox, um, you know, cause I was never comfortable in my own skin at that point. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. Um, I remember I knew somebody who had done it and, uh, they started to, they did, they you know, when I was very sick one day, they used to needle on me. And after that, I um, started doing it myself. Um, and that's when I switched from opiates to heroin. And um, heroin was great because I would just knock out and I would not remember. Um, but this is probably, you know, 
physically, I looked the worst in my life at this point. I was about 24, 25, maybe 26. Um, and you know, I lost my apartment. I stopped paying the rent. I stopped working. I stopped going to school and I would just take a needle and like stick myself anywhere. It was so terrible, you know, but I just didn't care. I ended up moving in with my dealer in his apartment. Um, you know, and eventually, you know, my uncle and my mom came and, you know, I went to treatment again and, and I did this for a very long time. It was a lot of like in and out of treatment, um, you know, but like eventually the, the, the drugs are just not enough. And, you know, um, so I started uh, smoking crack along with doing heroin and um, taking Xanax. And, um, you know, that's when the overdoses started. Um the first couple ones were like, you know, I would pass out on my steering wheel and people would say I turned blue. I don't remember. And then out of nowhere, I would wake up, you know, like, um, and there were a lot of those times, um, you know, and, um, I remember I was living with a boyfriend and I had a German shepherd and she would like lick my face and wake me up. Um, this is really when I started to, you know, see something bigger than myself work in my life. Right. Because, um, I, there was like one time I was driving my car, um, you know, and I had hit another car, um, didn't remember they were trying to give me a DUI when they breathalyzed me. I was overdosing at the time they rushed me to the hospital. The nurses wanted to put me in a coma. Um, as they're trying to put me in the coma, they pull drugs out of, out of down in that area and they hand them to the cops and the cops arrest me. Right. Um, you know, and I wake up chained to a bed three days later, pull the catheter out of me. Nothing's wrong with me, you know, and I ended up in jail, but the charges got dropped. Um, I remember I had stolen from Walmart. That was the first time I ever got arrested. There's actually, you know, something online that people can read about it if they want to, you know, and, uh, the judge released me ROR, even though I was in a different County, you know, um, things like that always seem to happen to me, right? Like, uh, something was definitely watching out for me. Like now, when, even when I look back, you know, um, you know, I started to, I got hep C and, um, my body actually, you know, fought it off. Um, but regardless of like something working bigger and bigger in my life. And I didn't realize it at the time. I, I was still not comfortable with me. And I did what's called the South Florida shuffle for a while, like in and out of treatment, in and out of detox, like, you know, needing a place to stay, like, um, you know, just going anywhere and doing anything to get what I needed. Um, eventually I was at this place and they were like, you know, this is not working, you know, so they moved me to California. Um, when I went to California to try to get clean, you know, it worked temporarily. Um, 
And that's when, you know, I started to become a phlebotomist, um, drawing people's blood, probably not the best idea being a heroin addict, (laughs) but, um, you know, and so I didn't stay clean for very long during that. And, um, my teacher actually found out I was using during the process and he still passed me because he didn't want me to lose my future. But I remember my parents came and, um, they had told me my father had passed away. Um, he actually, so he did go to Karen for those 30 days, but he thought he was cured. And, um, he started drinking and, um, he died from septus. He got an infection and he didn't want to go to the hospital cause he didn't want to stop drinking and he passed away. Um, and can you imagine not only your family coming to tell you you passed away, but they had left you money, um, a huge amount actually. Wow. And, um, that, you know, it's weird because I talk about this a lot with like my friends who are, who are going through the same experience as me and don't understand it. But, um, not only did it, so you think, you know, like you have all this money. So like, yeah, like now, you know, I'm not, I can't get in trouble because I can pay myself out of it and like this and that, you know, but really like the money just pushes you to not reach the bottom. Right. Um, I just, I started using heavier, but things started to get crazy. You know, I was buying like really expensive watches and I had six cars and it was just like six cars. Yeah. I was living a lifestyle that was not really, I couldn't maintain, you know what I mean? Because I wasn't working. I was using, um, you know, and did you blow through all the money? Not through all of it, but most of it. Yes. Like I went through probably like, you know, a lot of it. Um, and, um, you know, eventually, you know, I just, I was still lonely and miserable inside. It didn't matter if I had a boyfriend or what the circumstance was. And finally I had gone to detox and someone said something to me. They go, just cause you have money doesn't mean that you won't die or you won't, um, go to jail for the rest of your life. And then you won't be able to use the money. You went you know? from stealing at Walmart to having a whole ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's like something you read in a book. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but um so what happened next? You know, so I moved back to Florida because I well, even in California with that money, so I stayed for a while, but like if you're not California is very expensive to live in. Oh, I'm from California, right? I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what part of California and, uh, are you in? I was at LA. That's where I'm from. Yeah, I lived right by the stadium and um I just I couldn't keep up my drug use. And like living and not working, you know, it's just not possible at the time. You were right in the mix. (laughs) Yeah. So I decided to move back to Florida to be closer to my mom. And um, I ended up in detox and I went to a pretty famous place. It's called, um, well, I went to two that three treatment centers that really helped me. And I'll tell you why. Um, so first my family was like, okay, like, you know, the places we've been putting her haven't been working. Let's try this place. It's called Karen Renaissance. And it's, it's like the philosophy is to build you down, to break you up or 
knock you down to build you back up. Right. And they called you all types of names. It was a private place. Um, and it, I would never suggest it for any woman who's going through trauma. Um, so it was not a helpful place as far as like their philosophy, but I did learn. It was so strict that I did learn how to follow rules there. And I learned how to, you know, um, that I was able to get through something so difficult, you know, such an emotional pain. And, um, you know, I confronted my family about my father's abuse there. And I went through a lot at that point. And I didn't stay clean because I wasn't really involved in a program. But the next center I went to was called the Hanley Center. It's pretty famous. Actually, Dr. Phil sends some of his clients to the one in Texas, which is called Hannah's House. Um, but that's really where I got, you know, the foundation of um, the program that I am in, which is AA. And, um, you know, it's not... It's not just for alcohol, but it's really like a guide on how to live your life, you know, and be the best self. I just never really invested the time and the energy. Um, I started involving myself in EMDR therapy at that point because I had been through so much abuse and um, I would react. What, what does that mean, EMDR? So it's emotional distress something therapy. And basically, I don't know. I mean, I can look up exactly what it, what it stands for. Um, but, um, the therapy, okay. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So, what that means is either through eye movement, like looking at something, hearing something, or holding something, right? It activates this part in the brain, right? Um, it's very hard to explain, um, but you you kind of go through the memory and it reprocesses the brain. So you don't you might still think about the memory, but you don't react to it. You know, your body doesn't react to it. Um, and that's why I'm able to talk about my abuse and the things that have happened to me because I've done so much work on it. So it helped. Yeah. Um, I had also from, from all the overdoses, I had also experienced a lot of brain injury. I had three TBIs in my brain at the time and, uh, they would take me, to um this place um it was really cool but it was like basically we're scuba divers when they lose too much oxygen they put you in these tanks and they fill it up with oxygen um to like repair your brain um and i did that for a while and that helped right um like those two things together it, it really helped a lot for me, uh, especially and learning about the process of, you know, a program, um, you know, like I started to realize, you know, at this point that like, I really had, and it, it wasn't just a problem. This was taking over my life, you know, um, I was like, you know, in my twenties, I was like, Oh, I'll I'll stop when I'm 30, you know? And at this point I was like, 
coming close to 30 and I look back and, you know, there wasn't a lot I could show for myself. Like, yes, I graduated high school, but, you know, I was in private school and I got past a lot and um, there weren't a lot of things that I had to look back at and be proud of. Um, you know, and I, well, at least you got to do it at a younger age. I had the same feeling at 44 years old. So yeah, you have, you have, uh, uh, your whole life ahead of you still. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I am grateful for that. You're right. Um, and you know, I started to really invest in myself when I was at Hanley. Um, the only mistake I had made, um, was I got into a relationship with someone who was there and they were not trying to work on themselves. And when you put two people together who have huge issues, it's not for a good mix, you know, and, um, he started using in front of me and I stayed clean for about nine months and I had relapsed, but my disease had progressed so much to the point I was at 14 overdoses. Um, I had, you know, left detox three times and overdosed and they put me back. And my parents finally were like, all right, we got a Marchman actor, right? Like we got to do something because she's going to die. Um, you know, and, and at that point I was so emotionally broken. I was like, not afraid to die anymore. And that's a scary feeling to be at, like not, not caring if you live or die. You know, I was very selfish at that point, And I see that now. Um, but you know, I, I really needed that, you know? And so they Marchman Act in me and what Marchman Act really is, is like, basically if I leave treatment, I'll go to jail for mm -hmm. 60 days, up to six months, a judge rules that in and uh, your family or whoever can present, you know, reasons why they think that you need this. And my, my family definitely had a lot of reasons why they could put me there. Um, and they marched me to me and, um, at first, you know, I didn't really want to be sober. I was there for, I had to be there for 90 days. Um, and I just acted like I wanted to be sober. I did all the things right that I thought, you know, checked all the boxes basically. Um, I had a really great therapist that I have to this day. And, um, you know, I feel like something bigger has brought him into my life because we've been through a lot of the same things, um, which is really cool. Um, but, you know, I um, was checking all the boxes, but I met this girl. I was the community leader, as they call it. And uh, I welcomed the new people in and I met this girl. Um, and, you know, we'll call her Macy, but her name's obviously not Macy. And, um, it was weird because when I had met her, you know, she never judged me from the second I met her. And it was almost this feeling of a connection that I've never experienced before, you know, and she felt the same way and we were very attached to each other. And she was also, she also dealt with a lot of baggage like me. And she was also a very giving and loving person and very funny, you know, and we spent every single day together for about two months. And, um, you know, it's that feeling of like, all right, like I have this one person I can trust and like, I don't have to worry 
anymore, you know, um, because being like locked down, whether it's jail or in an institution and like not knowing when you're going to get out and like not, you know, it, it can be, you're forced to be there. So it can be pretty, um, difficult. And, um, you know, we really connected and then, um, so, you know, I still, I, I learned of all rules, but I wasn't great at it, you know? And, um, when I got to a lower level of care, which is like IOP, so you get your phone for part of the day. Um, and I would keep my phone and I would turn in a fake phone and, um, you know, she got kicked out for having a relationship with a woman and, um, I wanted to leave treatment, um, because I was afraid she was going to use and, um, she did use and luckily her girlfriend did leave. I couldn't because of the Marchman act and she didn't want me to, um, but she OD'd, um, and she died two days later. And that was probably the biggest, I don't know what it was, whether it was like a spiritual experience, whether, It was like, but the pain was so deep, so great to see someone who was so giving of others like myself. And so, you know, like dealt with a lot of stuff herself, but like was always kind and considerate and compassionate, you know, to see her gone. And she affected the entire community and everyone was upset, like, you know, all the therapists and, um, I told myself in that moment, I said, you know, I'm not going to let her death be in vain. Like, that's the best thing I could do for her, you know, right? Is like, if I start using right when I get out, like, I'm, I'm just, you know, acting like she didn't matter to me, which is so not true. Um, And so that's what I did. I, I got out and I really, you know... I connected with a program and I actually started um, working steps as they call them, but really it was just like a guide to work on my past, let it go and move on. And um, I lived in another halfway, but this time I took it seriously. Um, I showed up for women around me. Um, I got a job, you know, at a car wash, I was responsible and I made sure every time, you know, I shared my story, I talked about her, um, because this is kind of another way she's helping people without being around. Right. Um, you know, and I'm so very grateful I had met her because it was kind of like an unconditional love that I've probably never really experienced and got to experience and know that there's other people out there that have that. And, you know, I'll find that, you know, um, and I have actually now, you know, but at this point, um, I was still searching for it, um, you know, and I started to make friends, um, And things, you know, they started to get better um, as time went on, you know. Um, And then all of a sudden, um, it wasn't that I was doing it so much to do it anymore. It was doing it because I wanted to do it, because I wanted something different for myself, right? That, you know, I am capable of more. And just because of my past doesn't mean 
that I have to live like, oh, in that victim place. Nobody right. loves me, you know, and that's what I've done. Um, I've, you know, made friends or a family like I have such a great connection with my uncle and aunt. You know, they were very successful and they have a lot of experience in life. And, you know, I'm very close to them. And my mother and I have, you know, repaired our relationship and I've learned to kind of, you know, accept people where they're at and be okay with that and not have these expectations of others like I used to. Um, you know, and it's crazy because it's like when you meet me, like I'm always smiling, I'm always happy because my main purpose in life is to treat everyone you know, with the love and the kindness that I've always wanted, you know, be some sort of, I wouldn't say healer in a sense, but make people feel like that they're at home, that they can trust someone. And obviously, you know, I still put up boundaries and I have to protect myself in that matter. But, you know, um, it's just everyone wants to feel some kind of acceptance in their life, you know, and, I want to promote it's okay to be who you are and to not let like the darkness and like your bad experiences like conquer you. Like you're able to be in a dark place and come to this light. You know, um, I've really been working on connecting, you know, spiritually. I, I, I got a job in treatment. I started working in treatment and the clients taught me a lot, believe it or not. You know, it reminded me of where I was at. And, um, I saw like the, ch I started to see the change in myself that others were seeing in me at this point. What are you doing in treatment? Um, so I work as a tech, I am actually going to be switching into admissions, um, coming up here, but, you know, taking clients to groups and, um, you know, being a helpful ear when they need someone and just taking that negative mindset and turning it into a positive one or trying to help them see some kind of positive light in whatever they're going That's through. Awesome. Right. We can always look at the cup as like half full or half empty, but either way, you know what I mean? You're still looking at the cup. It doesn't change that. Right. So like, why not go through it kind of looking at it half full? You're more than likely going to be able to, you know, drink the milk if you're looking at it half full versus thinking it's never there is like the metaphor that came to my mind about it. But you sounds know, like you're fulfilled. I mean? You're, you know, you're feeling really fulfilled with your position now in life. Yeah, I do feel fulfilled. Um, you know, I am kind of starting to get to a point where it's, I'm not being as helpful as I used to be because, you know, when you work with um, clients on a daily basis, it's very emotionally draining. Um, and it's a lot of work. Um, I would say. So there's a point where it's, it's kind of time to move forward to something new. Um, but I would suggest it for pretty much anyone going through this battle. Um, it teaches you a lot about yourself. It helps you to kind of see what other people are going through or other experiences people have gone through and, you know, where they're at and um, that kind of thing. Yeah, you can so, utilize your experiences to leverage and, and help them. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, and I also take, um, you know, because it's, it's mainly about hope. That's what I say. People don't see a way out, you know, like you have to have hope, um, that there's something better. Um, you know, and I also think being happy is about choosing to be happy no matter what circumstance you're in, right? Like I could be the richest person in the world and have all the money, you know, and have an unlimited fund. But regardless of that, even in my situation, like I wasn't happy with myself. So it didn't matter, right? Yeah. About Where are your six cars now? now? Where? <laughs> well, I crashed them all or whatever. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but you really but, don't need six cars, right? It's nice to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just trying to fill this void inside of me at that point, you know? Um, You know, and I have like everything I need, but like most importantly, like I'm, I'm happy within myself, you know, and I'm very connected to something bigger than myself. Um, That's really the main thing is that I believe that there's something out there that has, you know, kind of protected me to be here today to share my experience, right? Like, you know, um, my friend Emily that I was talking about earlier, she also overdosed and she died um, recently. I've had a lot of friends that are gone to this that I feel like look down on me. Um, But the, you know, the aspect of drugs is getting worse and worse as time goes on, you know. Um, they're putting more and more, you know, fake stuff in there and people are just dying left and right, you know, and if I can just be that hope for that one person or say something that changes their mind at that moment, I may save a life, you know, you definitely have a purpose, Molly. Yeah. You're here for a reason. Yeah, definitely. And all those times, like being alone and thinking, you know, I, I would never want someone to go through this, you know? Um, but I also, if you're listening to this podcast, I do want people to know that just just because you maybe haven't gone through all the trauma I've gone through or, you know, the same experiences, it's also, it's about the thoughts and the feelings that we experience no matter what we go through, right? Like those feelings of like being alone and wanting to be accepted and you know, no matter what I tried to switch to, it was never enough. Nothing was ever enough for me. You know, like today there's a sense of peace in my life. Like I just thought that, you know, I would get the, the obsession of like wanting to use drugs and alcohol, like removed from me, like not having, you know, the urge or the craving or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's so much bigger than that nowadays, you know, um, just in this time, you know, I don't have to wake up every day and hold my seat and be like, please keep me sober today. God, please. You know, it's, it's not like that as much for me anymore. Yeah. At the you time know? of this recording, you're going to celebrate a year in a couple of days, right? Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, especially cause it's a clean year too. It's, you know, um, in sobriety, you can kind of, um, find other things to like get out of yourself, whether it's food, like I talked about, whether it's, um, you know, 
like overtaking medication or whatever the case may be, like lying and getting away with it and, you know, um, just doing things that are not that, you know, um, you don't feel good about basically, um, you know, and I didn't do that. I really connected with, you know, that inner self, right. That, that feeling inside of me that told me it was wrong to steal from, from CVS. Like, you know, nowadays I do something different about that. You know, I speak up when I'm, I'm dealing with things and I have learned to cope in other ways, basically healthier ways. Um, so, you know, I would say that, um, life is pretty good. (laughs) Uh, I was just about to ask you, what's life like today for Molly? Life is, um, good. It's still challenging. Like this past year, my mom had cancer. I went through that, you know, been through relationships. I've been through switches of jobs. I've been through, um, you know, weddings and different all different aspects of life, um, you know, but I, I got through them because like I have faith that there's something out there, you know, that's helping me. Right. When I, when I struggle, I, I don't feel like I'm in this alone. And, um, you know, it's, it's weird because something normally would, um, just bother me. And I'm not going to say it's perfect because it's not by all means. Like there's still nights where I'm crying myself to sleep or like, you know, struggling with something like, um, issues still happen, you know, things still happen, but the difference is, it's like, I grow in that pain nowadays. Like I know that, you know, this won't last forever and like, I can get through it, you know? Um, and it's kind of, um, it's good to be uncomfortable and to grow, right? That's how we keep going with life and, and become better, you know, otherwise we stay the same. And then, you know, um, I could pick up any day, you know, if I just decide to stop doing the things which I've been taught or have learned or, you know, um, seek, you know, my therapist or, or anybody. Um, I actually last week got to experience, um, my family members also in the, like, she also had a issue with drugs and alcohol and we got to share our experiences. And that was really cool. Like someone who's been through what I've been through, you know, who's related to me, you know, and is also doing well, you know? So what Um, do you do like on a regular everyday basis to sustain your recovery? Um, so meditation is very important for me. Um, being able to quiet the mind as best as that, that I can. I first started off with just, you know, uh, guided meditation, something to focus on or music in the tanning bed, even you know, <laughs> like <laughs> just, starting off that's what I did right um and then it grew from there um I just I keep enlarging on my spiritual life so it's not religion I don't go to church I don't feel like if I you know uh, do something God's going to punish me or something's going to punish me it's just having faith that something's working and I don't know what that is and that's okay right 
Um, so it's like constantly working on that and, and making sure that's good. And, um, service is a big part going out and, um, helping others. Um, also like passions, like, um, you know, as you do like your podcasts, like, um, I started reading tarot cards. I go to the gym, um, I'm going to start club sports, you know, just finding things that interest me nowadays, you know? Um, that, that give that drive to me, like that drive that I use so much to pick up drugs and alcohol. And now that drive is used differently, you know, um, it's still kind of the same thing. It's just switched to a better place. Um, so there's that. I also reach out to people that is so, so important. I do not isolate. Um, I make sure I am speaking with, you know, women in my life. Um, because the second I start, I stop doing that or even a therapist, somebody, you know, that knows what is happening, keeping me accountable. Um, you know, and, and I keep myself accountable for the most part, but it's, it's a process. It's a journey. Like I'm never really cured from this. Um, any day something could change, you know, but I, I put in effort, um, to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. Like, I don't want to go back to that. Um, you know, and when I help others, I, I kind of, get this feeling, right? Like watching someone be in the darkness, like where I was at and come to the light is better than any drug I've ever done. Like any drug I've ever done, like helping someone that is not, that is not tangible. That is not something you can really hold or even know if you're doing, you know? Um, so it's an experience I'd suggest for anyone, whether you're struggling with drugs and alcohol or not, you know? Um, it's just, it's, it's a very unique and strange feeling, you do know? You, uh, do you like read? Do you have any piece of literature that you can recommend? Uh, yeah. So I read, you know, the language of letting go. Um, that's very helpful for me. Um, cause I also struggle with codependency. Um, you know, I read the A Daily Reflections. Um, right now I'm reading Think Like a Monk. Um, I've read The Law of Attraction. You know, um, I have looked into just so many things. You just have to find what works for you, you know, because everybody's different and everybody will find something different, but you just have to look. You have to go out there and, and kind of find it, you know, um, but the opportunities are kind of endless and you start to see that. Right. What about know? music? Do you have a song that resembles your recovery? Actually, I do. It's um, Paradise by Coldplay. Have you heard of it before? I don't quite remember that song, but I'm going to definitely listen to it while I'm putting together your your episode here. Yeah. Um, so that song, it represents that time I was in that room feeling so alone, wishing I was in paradise somewhere else. Right. Like it just um, reminding myself of the desperation and the feelings I went through pushes me to keep going, you know, Um so that's one. There's another one, which is Don't Let Me Down by the Chainsmokers, which is really talks about like my um, higher power and, you know, um, how that has helped me. 
Um, something else, you know, I got a dog. I have an animal. Um, it's not quite like a child, but, um, you know, <laughs> you're a dog she, mom. Yeah, I'm a dog mom. And, you know, ha- being responsible for something else other than myself is really teaching me a lot, you know. And what kind um, of dog do you have? She is a hound lab mix. Her name is Sadie, and she is the best thing that's ever come into my life. Uh, she also gives unconditional love. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, what about like uh, some advice you would give to? There's a lot of Molly's out there in the world. <laughs> a lot of people going through the same thing that you went through. What what parting advice would you give them? I guess the parting advice I would give them was don't think that you have to do this alone. Um, Find someone that you trust and tell them what you need. You know, part of this is that, you know, my family always taught me to kind of um, make society wants to see that everything is okay. And that's not always the truth. And if you need help, there is help out there that you can reach out, whether it's to me or um, anyone, you know, there are always people willing to help. Um, How would somebody be able to reach out to you? um, So I can share my Facebook or my my telephone number, whatever, you know, is necessary to help. We'll put that information in the show in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. And um you know, whether it's just talking on the phone or helping you go to treatment to start a new life and do a restart or whatever you're going through. I mean, I, um, it doesn't matter. Like, like I said, the substance, whether it's food or eating, it's, it's always like the same kind of feelings that we experience and, and that, that bond kind of, you know, pushes you to, to do something different. So, so um, one of the questions that I have is like, do you find yourself in situations where there is alcohol and how do you deal with that? So I do. Um, this past weekend, I went to Sunfest, which is a festival um, where Little Lane was actually going. <laughs> and there was a lot of drinking. Um, I was even hanging out with my neighbor last night who drinks. But it doesn't bother me anymore because, you know, they can drink a beer and set it down. Right. Whereas me, I drink a beer and then I drink another beer and then I drink 15 more beers and then I have a needle in my arm by the end of the night. So it's like having an allergy to peanut butter, but like eating it anyways. Right. Mm -hmm. Like and not caring that I'll break out in hives. You know, it's just I react differently. And so, you know, it's nice because I'm noticing like so I can still have a good time. Right. Like I remember the entire show now, you know, like I danced (laughs) and everyone was so drunk. They didn't even watch me. You know what I mean? So it's like nobody knows whether you're intoxicated or not. You just, you know, 
Um, I wouldn't suggest putting yourself in that situation, you know, starting off or even, you know, by yourself, like always bring somebody, you know, if you can and make sure your motives are pure, like you're going somewhere for a reason, not like, oh, I'm going to go test myself and sit in a bar, you know, like, no, you know, I don't do that, you know. Um, But as far as like going to a wedding to see someone get married, you know, and being a part of that and, and not drinking you know like that's okay for me you know and it only gets better yeah you're right it does so what are you most proud of in your recovery Hmm. that's a hard question there's a lot um you can give me a lot a lot of answers too yeah i know that's like a big (laughs) big (laughs) um what i'm most proud about to be honest, as humble as this sounds, to be alive, that is like the a biggest great answer. You know, um, a lot. I've lost a lot of people this last year that were really close to me, and um, they didn't get a restart button. They didn't get to, um, and who knows if they would have decided to change their lives. You know, some people don't, um, and it's unfortunate. But um, just like the little things nowadays make me proud of myself, you know? Yeah, you have a lot to be proud of. I mean, you've made it through a lot, a lot of different situations, and you're still here to tell about it. And like I said earlier, I believe that you're here for a purpose. I'm here for a purpose. You know, we're here to tell our stories and help people Yeah, uh, by sharing our stories. So, yeah, Molly, it was great having you on the show. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. You're welcome. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed um, just the rawness that you brought to the show. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Um, not that I can think of, except if you're struggling, like, please reach out. Like, you know, there is somebody that will love you. Um, you know, I, I would, and I don't even know who's listening, you know, um, but there's always, you know, if you're, if you have that moment where you're just not sure, like, please reach out because you never know what the future may hold for you and who you may be helpful towards or what will happen. So very, very awesome. Again, thank you, Molly, for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you, everyone out there in the Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast community. We'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast on pureuncutrecovery.com. I'm your host, Ray Corona. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, please drop us a line at share at pureuncutrecovery.com. That's S-H-A-R-E at pureuncutrecovery.com. The Pure Uncut Recovery Podcast is a production of Pure Uncut Media. And we'll catch you in the next episode.